Last week, we set the stage for the most basic understanding of the foundation of why God created the church and why the people responded the way that they did. You see, after Jesus died, many of his followers had, had given up. They thought that it, it was just over. There was an atmosphere of disappointment, of, of fear and confusion. The followers of Jesus truly believed, I think, that Jesus was the one who would make the nation of Israel great again, that he, he would deliver them from the oppression of the Romans and return Israel back to its status of the most powerful nation in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but in some ways we can kind of imagine how this might have felt. You see, if you've ever put all of your hope into something or your hope into someone and ended up being disappointed, in many ways that is exactly how they would have felt then. They thought that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought that he was the one that was going to bring them back into being a great nation. And now here he was dead. But as I talked about last week, that's not actually completely true, is it? Everything changed. You see, within three days, this miracle happened, and one that caused the people to be in complete awe of who Jesus truly was. Because I'm not actually convinced that the early disciples uh, before the resurrection completely actually understood who Jesus truly was. I know they thought he was their Messiah, that he was the great one. They, they witnessed his miracles and all of these things, but I don't think they had a full grasp on what it was that God had come to do here on earth through his son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus died. But then on the third day, he rose again and he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. The scriptures tell us that he appeared to over 500 others, like literally in the flesh, perfectly intact and completely alive. You see, the belief that Jesus died and he was now alive is what caused the early church to gather. It was their main motivation. The simple awe of Jesus overcoming death was such a driving factor that they had abandoned everything they knew. They gave up everything in order to follow this resurrected Jesus. As a matter of fact, as we go through the story of the church in Luke's account in the book of Acts, which I'm hoping you're reading through as we progress through this sermon series, we're going to see that life would actually never return back to normal again for Jesus' followers. Nothing would ever be the same. Everything was about to change. Now, while Jesus was with them for 40 days, he continued to teach them about God's kingdom, about the kingdom of God here on earth. And some of that was about correcting them in their understanding of what his resurrection was actually to accomplish. Because it wasn't about Israel gaining political and religious power. It wasn't about something new. It was more about something new, something that people at this point in the story just didn't see coming even though Jesus had told them about it 
several times. We see this all through the book of Acts, where Jesus teaches, or sorry, through the Gospels, and in early on in the book of Acts, where Jesus teaches them things about his kingdom, and he gives them snippets of pictures of heaven, and they just don't fully grasp what it is that he's saying. Listen to how Luke describes one of the key interactions that Jesus had with those who were following him. And I don't know if you've noticed, but last week there was a section of chapter 1 that I skipped over. And so we're going to read that section, chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. Listen to what Jesus says. It says in verse 4, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Now, it uses the word command because Jesus means this. He wants them to live this. This is a direction that he's giving them. He says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. His instructions to them moving forward, this resurrected Jesus, these disciples who are in complete awe that Jesus has conquered death, his directions to them was to wait. Because something important and completely new needed to happen in order for his followers to begin to understand the significance of what was actually going on. Now, just take a step back and think about that for a second. Jesus died, and he came back to life three days later. How would you be reacting to this if you were living this in real time? Like, I I know for me, the instruction to wait would actually have driven me crazy. I would have been like, what what do you mean, wait? You, You have to be kidding me. You're alive. Like, Jesus, we've got things to do. We've got nations to conquer. Like, let's get moving. Let's make this happen. We've been waiting for thousands of years. We've been hearing from our ancestors about God moving, and now you're here. Let's go. I would have been kind of frustrated, and I actually think that that, that's probably how some of the disciples felt. As a matter of fact, right after Jesus tells them to wait, the the one whom the Father had promised was about to come, they brush right over what Jesus is saying. They brush right over this statement. They basically ignore it, and they ask the question, "So, so Jesus... When are you going to restore Israel? When are you going to restore Israel back to the superpower that we once were? When are you going to put us back in charge and make us the nation that holds power? Now, last week I pointed out to you Jesus' response to this and just how profound it was and how important his response to this is for the church. It's a very important one that I think a lot of us in the church even today need to be reminded of. If we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 7, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. You see, it's not for you to know. It's not your concern to know about God's timing, about how God is going to go about living out his promises. The power that you're looking for, it's actually misguided. That kind of power is not God's plan. This Holy Spirit power is actually God's plan. 
God's plan to give you power so that you can be a witness to the world. You see, Jesus died, and now he's alive. And you, the soon-to-be church, this is what he's saying to them, you need to tell the world about the good news of my resurrection. You need to shout happy Easter to the world with your life, with your actions and your words. You guys are going to be my witness to the world. You see, the resurrection became the centerpiece of who these people were. It became part of their new identity. Now, folks, this is important to understand. Everything was about to change for those who believed that Jesus died and he rose again. He was dead. Now he's alive. And he's starting to do something that, frankly, no one ever expected. You see, these followers, these followers of Jesus, they had moved past simply believing. They were about to give up everything for God's mission here on earth. Because they were so awestruck with Jesus that they were willing to give up their lives for him. You know, many in the church today, they never actually move past simply believing. And, and to be honest, it's not, really, it's not really their fault because in many of our churches, we stop at that part of the message. We actually just tell people in church, accept Jesus into your heart by believing saying a prayer, and then, and then go to church as much as possible. You know, meet new friends so that you have a good social life and, and, so, and as you wait to go to heaven one day. You know, enjoy the music and the entertainment. Occasionally be critical of it when it doesn't satisfy your wants. Unfortunately, all too often, this is the state, this is the message of the church in North America. Instead of being rooted in the awestruck wonder of Jesus being alive and living life on God's mission to share this good news with the world, instead, the church often gets stuck making God into who we want him to be, and we go to church instead of being the church. You know, this isn't actually new. So, so don't, don't feel bad about it. I'm not trying to beat you up or anything like that. This isn't new. If we go back into the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, he prophesied about this thousands of years ago when he was speaking to the people of God. And I actually think he would say the same thing to us today. If we jump over to Isaiah, right in his first chapter, listen to how Isaiah, starting at verse 11 in chapter 1, prophesies to God's people. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. So this is coming from God through Isaiah. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. There's that word, assemblies, in the Greek text, ecclesia. Your new moon feasts and your 
pointed festivals, I hate with all my being that they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands in prayer. I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. And then Isaiah says, learn to do right. And this is how he's defining it. From God. So God's speaking through Isaiah. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widows. You see, folks, sometimes our gatherings can become more about us, more about going through the motions of religion rather than the life-giving, repentive, kind of people in awe that he's alive type of celebration. The gathering of God's people can become skewed by sin. And that's what Isaiah is saying that God is crying out to his people about. And in our passage today, we're going to see what God does to motivate a change, to try to kind of wake his people up, to make it possible for us to not get stuck in religion like the Israelites did, to get stuck in the religious rut that Isaiah is writing about. You see, God is doing something new. He's about to do something new in the book of Acts, and I believe he's actually doing something new today even. Something that has never been done before, and it's something that is unique to his church. This newly minted people of God in this world that we call his church. God is about to help change the way that people think. To change where they find their identity and how they define the purpose of their life. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 as we begin to to move into the next part of explaining what the church is actually about. And so we need to read about how God established the church in the first place. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They were all together in one place. Let's just stop there for a second all together in one place. They actually listened to Jesus' command. They went and they waited. This is more amazing than you could ever imagine. And and what drove this was, was just rooted in their awestruck wonder of the fact that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. Folks, I can't stress this enough. That was their main motivation up to this point in the book of Acts. Jesus died, and now he's alive, and they're trying to work through what does this mean. Their purpose was about to become much more clear. But before we we get into that, I need to take you back a little bit to understand what is actually going on in this passage in the Jewish context, how they would have been experiencing this. You see, Pentecost, we've heard that word before. It's associated with the denomination, Pentecostals. But Pentecost in Scripture was actually rooted in a Jewish festival. Most Jews would have referred to this festival actually as the Festival of Weeks. It was the festival where the Jews celebrated everything that God had done, how God had moved in history as a nation. 
as God's people. It started with the Passover feast and it moved into the celebration of everything that God had done, his presence with them. The fact that God had given the Jewish nation freedom from slavery and how he had taught them in the wilderness to be his people. He had given them the laws of Moses. He'd given them structure and how to live as a called out nation under the rule of Yahweh. And so the Festival of Weeks was about uh, essentially celebrating together the miracles of God and the freedom that God had given them and how he had chosen them as their people. It was essentially, the Festival of Weeks was essentially them celebrating how God had moved in their lives historically. Now, this is important context because the Festival of of Weeks was about God moving and God, so it's showing us how God had moved before. But we got to keep in context the state of their nation based on what Isaiah said. They're no longer pleasing God. And so God comes in the flesh, the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. He dies and then he conquers death and he's alive. God has done similar things before, but nothing like this. And so he's about to do something that he'd never actually done within his whole relationship with God's people. And he's doing this ironically and not so ironically during the festival that celebrates God moving. Now let's read on. In Acts chapter 2, we'll go to to verse 2 and 3. So they're, they're, they're... The day of Pentecost came, and they're all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, it says, not just some of them, but all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So they waited, and they received something that they didn't expect. Even though Jesus had promised it to them, even though Jesus had taught them about it, they still didn't see it coming. It explains it as something like a rushing wind, a roaring wind, and tongues of fire. You know, to be honest, the first time that I ever heard this passage, I was new to to church and to Christianity, And I remember the preacher talking about fire, and he was actually in a sermon yelling, Fire! Lord, bring down the fire! Lord Jesus, fire! And to be honest, I I was freaking out at the time because I was like, what what is going on here? Like, is, is fire good or is it bad? Like, what exactly is this guy asking God to do? And we can do that in the church sometimes, right? Somebody that's new that doesn't understand the Christian culture Uh, hears the preacher preach, and they're like, what on earth is this guy saying? And that was my experience. Is fire good? Is fire bad? Should I be scared? Should I not be scared? To me, fire was bad. Now, I say this not to joke around. I say this because it's actually important. Because the meaning of fire in Scripture is important for us to understand. You see, fire in Scripture means that God is refining something. He is clarifying something. 
So when we read about tongues of fire, some of us get all weirded out. Many in, in God's church actually avoid this passage like it's some kind of heresy. But it's actually not. It's actually setting the stage for the most important experience, the most important experience of God that anybody could ever have. God's refining them and clarifying their purpose in this world. That's what it means by tongues of fire. He's refining them and he's clarifying their purpose. This is why God used fire to tell them what he was doing is new and it's going to change them. It's going to empower them and it's going to clarify things for them. Now, some were confused and some ran away. Yet others in the crowd got it. Others knew that God was moving again, which is what the Festival of Weeks represented. Here we go. God's doing what we're celebrating. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into more about Pentecost uh, a few weeks from now. But here's what you need to understand today. The day of Pentecost is the birth of the church, a new people who God would now call his children. It's a new movement of God that we can begin to celebrate, and it's called the church. This in itself, folks, is really radical because only the Jewish people were God's chosen and called out people. But this was changing, and it was changing for a very specific purpose. God's purpose of his people being called out in a new way to be witnesses to the world. You see, folks, the Jewish nation had always taken seriously their called-out nature, so much so that they actually kept to themselves. They actually stayed away from people, and they didn't share God with anyone because they felt like God was theirs. So what God is doing at Pentecost might actually, would have actually seemed very strange to them, but it actually wasn't at all. God was moving in his people at a time that they needed God the most. It was the festival of weeks, the celebration of Pentecost, where they celebrated God moving at the times that they needed him the most. God's just doing it again. You see, the Israelites had become lost in religion, and they needed clarity in their identity. Now, let's back up again. I need to quickly help you understand the importance of this movement in Scripture, this moment in Scripture for us today. You see, on the day of Pentecost, God moved the followers of Jesus past simply believing in awe that Jesus is alive. He moved them into a new understanding of who they were and what their purpose in, in life here on earth was. But you see, God knew that, he knew that we couldn't understand our called out identity and purpose under our own sinful nature, under our own power and our own abilities. He knew that we needed a nudge. We actually needed God's power in us. Not religious power, not political power, but God living in us kind of power. Now, remember, Jesus told them to wait for God's 
promise. And he told them that after they'd received the Holy Spirit that they were about to be given, they would be empowered and motivated to live his call to be a witness to the world. This means that we believe and are completely in awe of who God is. That his spirit begins to live in us, to purify us, to give us clarity and understanding of our identity. He refines our heart with fire so he can make, so, so he can essentially take over our hearts and make us new. You see, Pentecost, folks, was God's way of doing something new to show his people how faithful he is as our God. The Holy Spirit empowers us now. He makes us want to gather. He makes us want to celebrate the things that God has done and the promises that he has given us. He also brings us clarity around our, sin, our sinfulness and he convicts us to be changed to, to be driven toward repentance and living a forgiven and free life from sin. The day of Pentecost was God's way of beginning to teach us how to be God's people, how to live the life that he is calling us to. Because the Spirit is living in us. Now, because the Spirit is living in us, we can now live our calling. We can live our lives in the way of Jesus, and we can love the world around us in a radical, almost inhuman kind of way. You see, before you knew God, before I knew God, we lived a life, we lived life the way that we wanted to. But it was a life of sin. Now, I struggled with this in my early days because I was like, I'm not a sinner, like I'm a good person, but the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit convicted me and, and caused me to see myself differently and to see the world differently. I used to live my life the way that I wanted to. And now that the Spirit has convicted me and drew me to repentance, now I can live my life in forgiveness and grace. You see, we as his church, we've been set free from sin so that we can live in obedience and freedom in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit, folks, gives us a new desire, the desire to be obedient, the desire to know Jesus more and to be transformed into his likeness. We've been set free so that we can live in the joy of obedience to God. Because now we have the Holy Spirit living in us, which was brand new. This is a brand new thing, and it's never happened before. We now are called to learn to be God's people, with his strength and his power living in us so that we can be a witness to the world. The early church was trying to make sense of all of this. And I don't know about you, but I've dedicated my whole life to trying to make sense of all of this. But the spirit indwelling in me is what brings the awe of Jesus that he's alive, that he's risen. And now, now I can just experience who God is through a deep, intimate relationship with him. I can experience God because he lives in me and he guides me and he strengthens me. 
Dominic Russo, a, a biblical scholar in the area of church history, and actually one of Tamil's former professors in seminary, he says this about the church, about the early church. He says, Christians understood that the church was held together by a deeper spiritual meaning. They were set apart and called together by God. As spirit-empowered, resurrection-believing people called God's church, we're not just a group of people who gather as friends. We're not just a group of people who gather as a social club that meets weekly on Sundays. We're not just a place to learn about God. We are a group of people called out with a deeper spiritual meaning than any of these things. Because the world can accomplish social activities. The world can provide great music that moves us emotionally. But only God can move you into a deeper relationship with him through his spirit. And only God, through his Holy Spirit, can call you into a new identity and a new purpose in life. To be set apart, different than the sin-filled world around us, God calls us to be good, like Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. In that verse we read, he says, Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Folks, we are people who go against the brokenness of the world and show the ways of God, the way of love, the way of forgiveness and grace. This is the identity of the Spirit-empowered church, a church that does good, that lives good, that lives in the presence of Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. And we gather to celebrate God moving, to be in complete awe that Jesus died and he's alive and he now resides in us, empowering us to do good in a world that is completely broken and lost. We can't help when the Spirit lives in you to be compelled to live this new radical call of obedience, to seek what it means to be God's people, God's church, people who are being refined by fire to gain clarity and understanding of their purpose and identity in life, God's power for God's purpose in us. The church is called to be God's people, God's witness to the nations, and he has given us everything that we need to accomplish this mission, God's mission. This morning, folks, I want to challenge you with one simple thing. If you are not constantly in awe of God, if you're not constantly wanting to live in obedience to him, then I want you to ask God to reveal to you your motive and your purpose in life. Your motive and your purpose for being part of the church. Ask him to refine you with fire. I know that's scary, right? It seems like really scary language, but ask him to refine your heart with fire, to be filled by his spirit and given the power to live your life on mission, to be his church not just go to church. 
When you truly, folks, submit your life to God's refining fire, you will gain clarity and the power you need to live as God's called out people. But to be honest, it takes giving up everything. It takes a willingness to just walk away from everything because we're in such awe that he is alive. You can't hold on to anything from the past. You see, folks, from this point forward, church, we need to give our whole lives to God. We need to submit our lives, not just part of our lives, but our whole life needs to be submitted to God's purpose, to God's spirit. This morning, folks, I'm challenging you to let go of earthly control and to give up everything for him. Let your heart be refined by the Holy Spirit who's living in you. And then, then you'll understand your identity and your purpose in life and what the scriptures mean about being the church.